Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. Well, the big news of the week was the uh, vaccine that Pfizer announced. Um, and it looks like they have announced that it's possibly or is over 90% effective. Um, Dr. Fauci, I read, was saying that he hoped for 75% effective. So I think in terms of that, it's the news was as good as it possibly could have been. Um, so I think that's what really caused the market to take off this week. Uh, and so I think here we are at a situation where we have this sort of finish line, I guess, at least the market seems to think that. Um, and uh, it looks like we could have it as soon as the end of December, early January to start dosing the highest, uh, the highest at risk part of the population. Um, but I also read that uh, Gottlieb or Gottlieb was on CNBC and he was saying that uh, maybe not widely available until the third quarter of 2021. So, that's still a big bridge, a big gap to close. And how do we think that affects, you know, the behavior aspects of the population? Now that we kind of have defined, um, not for certain, but we've defined some sort of finish line or potential, yeah, you know, uh, relief on this thing. Do we think, do we think this, uh, um, I guess, how do we think, does this change course in behavioral patterns? There's a, I think there's a few things on that. I mean, uh, I think theoretically you would think that the population would be maybe more willing to accept some short-term mm -hmm. lockdown, uh, knowing that at least now that's not an indefinite thing. Um, also, for sure, I mean, as we can see, I mean, just yesterday, Thursday, we had, what, more than 150,000 new COVID cases. Yes. And that's the highest since the, it started. And uh, if you look at a chart of the, the seven day average of new cases. I mean, it has gone absolutely parabolic over the past month or so. So, I mean, this is clearly coming in. This is clearly getting to be an, another extreme level like we saw uh, in the spring and in, in, in like May, I think it, it peaked out. You know, I was looking at a map this morning on, in the Wall Street Journal of where these COVID cases are actually taking place. And it's all, it's all in Midwestern, well, it seems like it's all in mis, mostly in mis, Midwestern states that never had it in the first place. Um, you know, places like North Dakota and Illinois, and it doesn't seem like it's that bad. Um, I mean, you look at Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, Michigan, Kansas, those are like where it's the worst. But it doesn't appear on this map that I'm looking at in today's Wall Street Journal that it's so much in the east or west or west coast. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, logically, it, you you know, it really burned through. I think you know New York and a lot of the places that had it bad first. Yeah. Um. So I, 
I think a lot of the pain for those places might be out of the way, but uh, it's certainly something to bear in mind. I think, I think there's actually so far maybe potentially less concern about hospitals getting overloaded because with this wave, it's been much more spread out um, mm-hmm. where it's a more even distribution across the country, as opposed to being in hotspots where the hospital centers would get overloaded. So, but of course, if this trend continues, I mean, I think we're certainly going to see some, some real concerns. Well, I think we're going into uh, holiday season. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know. and, and you see, you know, governors wanting to impose restrictions and maybe affect people's holidays. And that could be real painful for people, but, uh, well, I've already been talking to people just here and there that they're talking about their Thanksgiving is just going to be whoever's in their house. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I know, I know my Thanksgiving is going to be eating Cracker Barrel, uh, a Cracker Barrel uh, fried turkey that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, with, with me and Jill because um, we're going to be in mandatory baby quarantine. So it's go. just us. Well, you're going to have a baby in uh, early December. So you're uh, going to be really locked down. Yeah, really locked down. So uh, that's exciting. Well, I know it's not you who's having the baby. It's Jill. Yeah, it's not me having the baby, but well, <laughs> let's just say we're very excited about that. Uh, be- before we get off the topic of this, I just want to say in the Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, there's a review and outlook on Biden's lockdown lobby. And I'm, what I'm reading here is that he's he's proposing a national lockdown. This is what his advisors are saying for four to six weeks. But it, it's not evenly distributed throughout the whole country. I don't know how you could have a national lockdown. I think it should be based on regional issues. Right. Throwing it out there. Yep. I think, uh, you know, I, I've even read that in, in Europe. I mean, there's even pushback now against them doing more strict lockdowns. I know the UK decided to do a one-month lockdown, and they're getting a lot of pushback. And there's been experts that said that's not necessary. And I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence for both ways, you know, um, so it's, it's really not clearly understood at this point, you know, what's the best thing to do? Because at the end of the day, this is a very contagious virus. And uh, yes, if you completely lock down and you stay in your house and you don't go out, yeah, I can see that really helping to stop the spread. But at the same time, the trade-off of that is so enormously painful for the long term. Um, and, and that's why we're seeing all of these, you know, we're seeing, you know, Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell and, uh, and lots of people starting to really wonder about the long-term effects that uh, this is going to have on the economy. Um, and there's a lot of things to think about that, you know, isn't that, that, that you don't, there's a lot of things to think about that looking at a market that goes straight in, straight up won't tell you. Um, like for instance, you know, Jerome Powell's, he was recently talking at a, a European central bank forum and uh, he's talking about a lot of the structural issues that there's going to be and there's, and how there's a lot of women out of work involuntarily right now um, because they got to be at home with their children and their children are getting, you know, I can't see it being a very great education being on a, looking at a screen for what, five, six, seven hours a day. Um, so you're going to have a generation of you know, depending on how long this goes, of kids who uh, had a different kind of education and maybe not up to par. And um, it's just it's a lot of things to think about. 
Well, maybe there's more parent-child bonding going on. Like, Scott, you have your daughter at home, and you're, you know, teaching geography and math and science to, in addition, trying to, you know, run your own business. How's that yeah. working together? Yeah, it certainly is a uh, a change of pace and uh, have to relearn, I guess, what I learned years ago. But, um yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I would imagine that the, the, I guess the one thing I would fear is it depends upon the household. So um, even though the content that the, the child has to consume or uh, or undergo or, um, is principally the same across all the kids, it, I don't know how much, you know, the parents can devote towards helping them get through those assignments, right? Because depending upon the age group. I'm certainly of, or my daughter's of the age group where um, there needs to be a little bit of handholding uh, as you transition from subject to subject. Um, uh, I would imagine that the delivery of how uh, education is consumed is going to be very, really vastly varied. Uh, and I would, I could see how that could, um, you know, change, um, you know, the learning patterns, right. And, um, you know, come, maybe next year, the year after where things return back to normal, um, you know, what kids, you know, uh, would, uh, you know, would take to the, the, the subsequent grade, uh, you know, faster or slower or whatever it may be. So um, there's a lot of kind of unknowns, um, you know, as we go forward on this thing. I know in Montgomery County, the school board is voting whether to shut down schools for two weeks going into Thanksgiving. And I guess that, you know, there's, I mean, there's strong feelings both ways. Yeah. Maybe going back to Jerome Powell, what was he? What was his uh, thrust that he was talking about at that European meeting? Uh, basically, you know, he was just expressing how you know how worried he is about the long-term impacts of the from the virus. Um, you know, he talks also about how there's going to be you know generations of intellectual capital that gets destroyed from small businesses that close. So you have small businesses that may have been open for multiple generations that just gets wiped out. I mean, what is the long-term effect of that going to be on, on the future of, of the fabric of our society? If it's not being, if it's not built on a middle class that's thriving on their businesses and their local, you know, efforts, I think that's part of the long-term structural worries that you're going to have long-term motivation issues, long-term, um, uh, employment issues. Uh, yes. I just think there's lots of, you know, these sort of on these consequences that aren't, you know, you definitely can't see from the stock market because at the end of the day, the stock market is really just trying to figure out what the fair present value is of, you know, profit, corporate profits. And I mean, it's not, it's not really looking at these realities all the time. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, we got the news of the vaccine at a market that was practically at all time highs after one of the greatest economic disturbances ever. Yes. How is that? I mean, it just, you know, it continues to boggle the mind, right? I mean, it's just, it's the most well, bizarre. Who, who was it that we were reading about that says that this rally has been absolutely crazy? I mean, we were just reading um, that we're in a super bubble. Yeah. So, I mean, you have, you have the crowd of people that have been saying, you know, pretty much since this happened, since the rally really started, like Jeremy Grantham, for instance, who he um, he recently doubled down on his opinion that we are in a you know an absolute big bubble, um, and he you know really uh, 
Well, the quote was, Jeremy Grantham doubles down on his market bubble call, say, says pandemic rally has been truly crazy. You got other guys like Jeremy Siegel saying that next year, you can look past the COVID winter, could be just like... Uh, well, yeah, so you have Jeremy Grantham. Is, candy. So Jeremy Siegel is a perennial bull. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's his, you know... He's been right his whole life because stock market goes up over time. So, yeah, that's that's for sure. And it's it's usually it's I mean it is the correct position to you know generally take. But I mean, the concern is really all about you know the timing. You know, if you were so so as like Jeremy Grantham is saying, is that what is really the next ten year return of the stock market look like from these highs now? So if you were to buy in now at these highs when you're buying assets that are have very high asset and the prices are very lofty. I mean, the valuations are very lofty. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is your 10 year return going to look like if you're just going into uh, just into the market in general? Yeah. I would, I would imagine if you have like these long-term structural issues um, that are going to persist because there's no quick fix for these things. I would imagine that, uh, compounding at 10 to 12 or 10 to 15% a year uh, is not sustainable whatsoever. Correct. Yeah, no. definitely not. No. And, and we also are seeing, you know, a market that it feels like it goes through a cycle every day. You know, the, 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 re, the, the velocity wow. at which rotations happen and then, and then, and then unwind and the, the, the velocity of this move higher from the lows. I mean, we're looking at this all and from such a, you know, it's in, in it's, you know, we try and make these big calls about this move, which has been crazy. But if you just take a big step back and look big picture, I mean, no one really knows what the future is. I mean, who would have guessed that the market would be at all time highs after this coronavirus hit at this no point? No one, no one, no one. I remember, no one. I remember when, you know, back in April, March, May, you know, all the uh, pundits and all the economists and all the advisors and analysts at Wall Street firms were saying, be very, very cautious. Don't be careful stepping into this market. And then it went up 40%. Yeah. So Grantham, who's called two, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's become known for calling. He's called two of the last major bubbles. Um, he's another interesting point he says about bubbles is that, when you're in a bubble, it becomes a sort of like a, it, it's like a, it's like a cancer almost that grows this like psychological offshoot that is so detached from reality that it just keeps grinding on itself and going higher and just gets exacerbated. I mean, he says, he says, and this market can go up on bad news. It can go up on good news. It can interpret, yeah. it interprets a Trump victory as bullish. And then as soon as it looks like he's not going to win, it's seamlessly, uh, it seam seamlessly calls a Biden victory a bullish thing. So uh, these are characteristics of a bubble, he says, where no matter what you throw at it, it'll just say, oh, no, that's bullish. We'll, we'll spin it bullish and we'll go higher. And then, of course, there's so many other factors like performance chasing, you know, lots of career risk on the line. I would imagine for a lot of hedge funds and people that have just been underperforming like crazy. I mean, you get those guys in a tizzy trying to chase this thing in a, you know, it's just a recipe for, for a reversal. And Scott, what do you, Scott, what do you think the 
outlook, let's say the next decade from here. Wow. Yeah, let me uh, let me let me go uh, grab my crystal ball. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I would what I would say is, if you kind of look at like cyclically adjusted PEs historically, not a great tool for timing markets, but for more or less forecasting a broad kind of range with within some variants of futuristic returns, I think the values today would uh, would suggest a more muted outlook uh, for equity returns. So. Um, you know, so not so much in the magnitude of, you know, 10 to 15, but, you know, some order lower than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or I think you're going to have to start looking a bit less myopic and a bit more, uh, you know, outside the U.S. to try to find, you know, growth opportunities. So, so I think, you know, the market moves in cycles. Uh, and I think um, what, you're tar- what, do you, what you see here. One observation I read was when you when you get to the point of the cycle where you have very narrow leadership. So what that means is you only have really one or two sectors that are carrying the ball forward, and then you have the rest of the team that's kind of lagging behind. That's not necessarily uh, an indication of of the resurgence of a cycle, uh, like you would think with this recession. It typically uh, or historically has suggested that you're near. Uh, the end of a cycle. Yeah. So if it was much, this, if it was much a, a, a broader based rally, or you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, focus on the upside when you have you know multiple sectors. So kind of you know the entire sea is rising. Yeah. Uh, well, in this case, it's the technology mm-hmm. that's booming, and yeah. everything else is. So I know that I saw that article that David was referring to earlier that Zoom has a market cap greater than ExxonMobil with only 1% of the workforce. So it seems like that that's a technology stock um, benefited from COVID. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. A, so what's well, going to happen going forward? Well, so what I would say is, and this is referring to this guy, uh, Martin Wolf, um, he was talking about this. And, you know, he, he gives credit to the technology sector because – the, the the utter efficiency that they're able to do, you know, they're able to generate such massive profits and such value um, off of such such a small investment, you know, only having 1% of the workforce, um, that it's incredible and it's fair to have for these companies to have, you know, a better, like a loftier valuation. Um, that's, I mean, so so looking back again or taking a step back again, you know, when we talk about the market in a bubble, you know, most of the market's not in a bubble. That that's the point. I mean, the point is that most of the market is not in a bubble at all. It's just that the part of the market that is seeming to be bubbleish is. I mean, keep using the word bubble. I mean, not even. It really comes down to just a few stocks. It seems like, but um, it is just they have gone so big that they're able to carry the whole market, um, without any regard to what the rest of the market is doing. It seems. I remember uh, back in two thousand. Early 2000, before March, before the Nasdaq collapsed, um, there was a company called Internet Capital Group. Its market cap was greater than General Motors, and the only real revenue it had wasn't real revenue. It might have been some revenue, but it was basically how many clicks of a mouse or websites could they generate compared to at the time General Motors was a gigantic, substantial company. This is 2000, and yeah, it, that, that was. 
that was like the beginning. I mean, that was, you know, that, that still stands true today because for so long, a lot of these growth companies that are internet companies, they're until, you know, while they're not, while they're not making any money, they're always judged based off uh, users or, you know, time yeah, on I mean, the screen, that kind of thing, um, which is, which is, you know, in fairness tied, you know, tied to ultimate success and mon- ability to monetize. But, uh, but just, it's an interesting sort of point. Um, I mean, back in those days, any internet company was moving up logarithmically. Yeah. And, you know, we, you know, we see that now. Uh, it's just that, again, to be fair, these companies are actually making money. So there is a big yeah, difference. That's a difference. That. that is a difference. No question about it. There's no question about it, but uh, the, the, you know, the rest of the market will like, like to back to Scott's point, um, you're never going to really, you're never going to move to a new cycle or, you know, have any real shift in, in um, the way the market is acting until you get more breath, you get, you get the whole market participating. And that's when you have to look at the actual economy and the actual state of affairs in the country. How is, how are the, what is the outlook for the cruise, the cruise lines, the airlines, the brick and mortar retail, uh, small caps, energy. What what is the real you know? How are they going to participate? And I guess the vaccine helps with that, right? I mean, it will help with that, but there's still a lot. A, a big uh, Scott. Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I would echo that, right? Um, just a, a, an interesting data point. If you look at you know since the news of the vaccine. If you look at the sectors that are rallying the most mm. uh, in the last, call it, you know, five days or a week or so, um, they're the sectors that have been beaten up the most this year. So primarily energy and financials, right? Um, yeah. and, and to some extent, industrials. Uh, whereas since the, you know, the vaccination news, you've seen this pullback in stocks that have been kind of the work from home orientation. So technology, discretionary communications, yeah. your, you know, um, you know, your, some of the tech platforms on the communication side. So, um, so you're kind of seeing this, you know, those are obviously those three are, are leading for the year, but have pulled back substantially since the coronavirus. Uh, you know, it's amazing news, how, or the vaccine news. Amazing how quickly some of these stocks reacted like planet fitness, which had been trading around 60 the day of the announcement of the vaccine went up to 75. I mean, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep. And there was things like zoom that was, um, went down, you know, 15, 20%, just like that. Yeah. Uh, just I don't think right. investors had time to react. I mean, the average guy didn't have time to assess that. No, no, it's yeah. I mean, that's the thing. These, the moves in the market happen so fast now. Um, I mean, this was clearly a big pen up, you know, event. Uh, so um, to that's me, it that. was like there was algorithms in place that as soon as it announced, there was like instantly stocks that would benefit went up and the stocks that would be hurt went down. And it, the average investor didn't have a chance to. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the average investor, the average day trader. What are we talking about? Investing or day trading? If you're investing, then you know, of course, maybe you should just be in the market and just, you know, be averaging in. 
Um, if you're really trying to get cute, well, that doesn't work out for many people for very long, um, for the average guy at least. At least in my opinion, in my experience, and back in my day trading days, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like a hero for a week, and then I feel, you know, like a zero, like a hero, and then a zero. Yeah, hero to zero, it happens all the time, real quickly, and it becomes it becomes very stressful, which is why you know. That's why I want to ask Scott what he thinks about day trading. Uh, I think it's a bit of a mugs game. Um, I think very few could probably do it sustainably or consistently. Um, not to say that, you know, um, you know, there isn't, uh, you know, value in it, but I mean, certainly from our perspective, you know, we're investors, not traders. Um, but it's difficult to, I mean, because when it comes to trading, so much of it is psychological and you really have to have you know, right. that mental, uh, fortitude to, um, to one, be very disciplined, which is very difficult. And also, I think, um, stay kind of, uh, uh, you know, I guess cool headed about it. I think the emotions, you know, tend to really work against you. So, um, I mean, uh, I've not done it. Uh, so I'm not speaking from experience, but I do know, uh, people who do it. I, I used to invest in strategies that would do it. Um, and, um, you know, they have their day, but over, you know, multiple cycles, it's, um, it's, it's difficult. Over my, over my, which is over 30 years of investing, the one conclusion that I come up with is that having a rules-based strategy is, is actually probably the most essential part of a successful investment program. Because once emotions take over, once, you know, fear and greed are uh, out of mind and there's no rules-based program in place, think you're in trouble. Yeah, look at investing is no different than trying to get fit, right? Uh, it doesn't happen immediately and it takes a very good plan that you have to stick to and have a lot of discipline with. Um, I think something simplistic is that people don't really realize. So, um, you know, uh, you don't get fit after a week of training, right? So, um, so yeah, you have to think long-term and have a, really disciplined approach, but also the, the, the humility to kind of learn and build a feedback loop if you want were to do it. Right. So, uh, so I would echo that. I think, you know, some type of rules-based process that, um, you know, you can implement, but also it maybe has some empirical evidence of having some consistency. Uh, there is no system that wins the entire time or can produce the most profits consistently forever. But if you can find something that, you know, is sensible, easy to understand, um, and, um, you know, gives you that consistency that you're looking for. Uh, I think that's, you know, the best, uh, solution. Yep. Well, I, I agree. But here we are in a, what appears to be a bubble. And, um, one of the things I've noticed for people that have been successful in investing is when the market does get into a bubble and if they've been riding it, if they have some kind of value that they assign to the money, like another house or vacation home or uh, a real estate investment, and once they hit that target thing, they have a rule that says, okay, I value the house more than this account value in my market, in the market. And so I sell the stocks and buy the house or the vacation home or whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, I think 
That's interesting. It comes back down to though, how do you know to make that decision and when to make that decision? And I think it's accidental. It's yeah. I mean, that's just <laughs> kind of like an anecdote. You'll, you'll hear that anecdotally, but like, how do you, how do you, you know, uh, structure a system around knowing how to, how to behave like that. Um, so this Jeremy Siegel, and I think there's a lot of, you know, he makes a really good point though, is because now that we have this sort of vaccine in this finish line, um, and we call it finish line, but I mean, I still, I don't know. We'll see if it's even really going to, you know, how much it's going to help. But uh, he's saying that next year the trade would be to be in value because because now there's there's there'll be reason to bid up socks that are going to ultimately benefit. And I think there's there is a lot of uh, there's there's something to that. I think um, it's just that will that be able to happen alongside the technology? I mean, how much you know the, the reversal of the technology sector would hurt the whole market right so um that being said though that you can you know if you look at it from a sector perspective there still are value plays within technology right so that's true yeah so i don't think you have to would have to avoid any specific sector i just think the style of how you filter you know whether it's your funds your etfs your uh stocks would would uh would probably um uh you know does deserve a look, right? I think value moves in these 20 year cycles. Uh, I think we discussed this on one of the previous podcasts. So I think the big value move was what 83 to 05. Uh, and then from 06 onwards, as growth is taken over, they, they tend to, uh, to trade off, you know, leadership. When, when did you say, when did you say value had its glory days against Scott? Yeah. I, I think if, um, if my reading is correct, it's 83 to 05. Okay. Wow. So it tends to move in like 20, 25 year increments where you have like these call it, you know, uh, long periods uh, of, uh, of relative outperformance. Right now you, you always are going to capture some of that with, with a generic index like the S and P because you know, as more people bid up, you know, one style meaning growth or value the other, they become bigger constituents uh, relative to others in that index. So you, you kind of capture some of that, but, uh, but I think to Davey's point, um, this could be, um, you know, the time where you start to say, okay, you know what, maybe I'm not as rounded out or as balanced as maybe I have been in the past. Maybe it's time to start looking at that and building a bit of an exposure there, uh, to make sure that when, I mean, the timing is, is completely, uh, impossible to, to predict, but at least you'll have, you know, some exposure there for when that, you know, for when that. Uh, how, how are we defining value stock? What would be the definition of a value? Um, so, I mean, but so that's interesting point. So you can define value a number of different ways, whether it's price to forward earnings, price to book, uh, enterprise value to sales. Um, there are a number of different ways, but you're kind of trying to find relative cheapness or relative, uh, something that's relatively inexpensive, versus something else based upon some type of fundamental metric, right? Would dividends, consistent dividends be a value um, component? Yeah. Uh, characteristically, um, value-oriented stocks would, uh, have, um, would have some component of, of, of dividends or growing dividends, you know. Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. Here's an interesting note from Goldman Sachs. Um, Goldman Sachs expects that uh, 
While the path ahead will be bumpy, they expect mass immunization to largely complete the reopening process and trigger a reacceleration next spring that will leave full-year growth well above expectations. So there's another there's a bullish side of the coin. Um, they expect the first 45 million vaccines would go to the highest-risk individuals in the first three months of the year. Um, other older Americans and those with comorbidities would begin to be vaccinated in April with the rest of the population, including younger people being vaccinated in May and June. So uh, that's a little bit more, a quicker timeline than I think Scott Gottlieb was laying out. Um, I think Scott Gottlieb is probably being as conservative as he possibly can when he talks. Sure. Um, so, I mean, so, you know, you know, we struggle with, you know, we, we, we've been talking about how we feel like we've been in a bubble basically since like June, I feel like. And I mean, a lot of times, you know, you see in the market when everyone thinks one thing that the, turns out not to be true, at least yeah. in, in the medium run. So we will see, because the one thing that you always have to remember is with these low rates, I mean, equities are the place to go for return. I mean, uh, in my opinion, it, it's going to always, there's always going to be money flowing into equity. Um, when rates are, are this low. And they are low. Yes, they are. So, so could we get through, I mean, could, could the, the, the stock market continue to overlook all the risks for, for another, you know, 12 months? Sure. Sure could. Which is why trying to guess what's going to happen is a fool's game. Yep. You know, it's funny when the when the pandemic first hit, you couldn't get a mask. Remember? Mm-hmm. And now that we're midway into it, we didn't have a vaccine. Well, we may wind up with more vaccine than we know what to do with it. Moderna comes along, and Pfizer's got one, and there's probably five or six others in on the way. We may be, we may just have the opposite situation. Yeah. We, have, we have too many vaccines available come at some point right i mean so i mean you very well can also expect a huge resurgence in economic activity once you know the coast is clear i mean yeah i'm sure there's going to be a lot of people scheduling vacations they want to get out and do something that's something they haven't you know they've had to put off some vacations probably and they want to go out on vacation they want to go out and just do stuff so i mean there's most certainly i would definitely see there being almost a boom of some sort as well um after this but I, but that's still that's that can that can be true, as well as a lot of damage to the structure, like the the, the middle of the of the middle class as well. You can both can be true at once. Not everyone lost their jobs, but a lot of people did, and there's still going to be there's going to be a there's going to be pain as well as a lot of activity. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at yourmoneydoit at gmail dot com. See you on the next one.